Hey, good morning. Yeah. Hey, we are in this, this series of, called Church Detox. We're looking at different ways of, of conversation that we need to have so we can move forward. And it's interesting because anytime we hear the word detox, I think there's, there's three stages that we go through. First is we have to realize that something needs to change, that something can be different. There's that possibility. Then the second stage is actually talking about that, maybe asking some questions of why, the big why questions, and hearing some answers, getting some new perspective and understanding. And then the third is actually that change occurring, that change happening. And I think that's the, that's the extent of what detox is. So those questions of the why, and that's where we're at today. Um, it's interesting because I think we have these basic ideas of practices or ideas that we have in the church or just in our lives. And we have to ask the question, why do we say that stuff? I don't know if you guys realize this, but there's stuff inside the walls of the church. There's phrases or, or words that we use that a lot of times we want to use outside of the walls of the church or outside this community. Or there's things that we do that we have to ask, why do we do that stuff? Why Look at the foundation of that. And I think we have to do this so we can chisel away at the basic beliefs of the church. But these big questions, why do we do this? Or why do we say this? And I think there's some examples in culture. So here's, here's a couple of them. Maybe you've used this phrase in a conversation with someone, and it actually has become a cliche. This phrase, he's pushing the envelope. You guys ever hear this? Someone's pushing the envelope. Now, as a kid, I always thought that that was... There was something in the envelope. There was like, there was something that, that you're going to make a bet or some kind of deal or some kind of contract. And I was sitting on this side of the table and the person I was making the contract with is on that side of the table. And I'm pushing the envelope to them to realize that it's actually about talking about an, an aircraft that when it pushes the envelope, it means it's going too high in altitude or too fast for the way it's built. It's pushing the envelope. And so another one that I think we use, and maybe some of us have, have used um, this one, is the phrase, and maybe you're, you're shooting hoops with your boys, and, and there's a free throw, and the guy goes to shoot it and completely misses it, airballs it. Maybe you say this phrase, maybe you don't, and someone goes, close, but no cigar. And I'm like, where does that come from? Where, why do we say that? What does that even mean? And so we have all these cliches. So the carnival... In skilled games, and usually the shooting game, if you shot the target and you made the bullseye, if you got the target, they would hand you a cigar. If you were close, the guy who was in charge of it, the carny, would look at you and say, close, but no cigar. And so it's interesting to hear the foundation of these things, and, but why do we say this stuff? Why do we do this? And so the question today, and it's a, it's a big question, but what should the church be? And that's what we're talking about. What should the church be? God, we invite you into this place. We know that you're here. It's not by the power of an invitation. But God, we do want to say in our own words, we invite you here. We want to meet you in this place as the church, as your body, Jesus. For us today that, that follow Jesus, God, may you take us a step closer to you and understanding what is our role, what does it mean to be the church? What should the church be doing? 
And for those, God, that are here today that are sitting that don't follow you, God, may their heart be open to you, to your message, to your way of life. Jesus, thank you for captivating us with your grace, with your mercy, and your compassion. It's in your holy name. Amen. So just to be clear, I'm not, today, when it says, what should the church be? I'm talking about what should we really be, and not necessarily what we're even doing. So I'm not going after social justice or, or mercy or that kind of stuff, but I'm talking about what is our role. For those who follow Jesus, who say, hey, I am a follower of his, what does it look like when we're outside these walls, outside the walls of the church, we're in the world, what does that look like? What should the church be out there? There's this game that, that my kids play once in a while, and I love watching it. It's kind of reverse hide-and-go-seek. And so in typical old-school hide-and-go-seek, what you would do is everyone would hide. There'd be one person that goes and finds them, and when you find them, those people are out, right? They have to sit on the sidelines, and they get to watch. In reverse hide-and-go-seek, there's one person that's it, and they go find someone. And when they find that person, when they go after them and find them in that place, they actually bring them in, and now they're a part of what they're doing. And now those two go out and continue the game, and they find the third person, and the fourth person, and the fifth person, and they bring them in, and they keep going out and finding more. So people aren't pushed out. They're brought in, they become a part of what's happening, and they keep seeking out. So the question is, what should the church be? And we're going after this. This is the phrase, the church is the light of the world. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus is making this, this long sermon, and he says this in his very own words. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. So there's, there's usually there's this understanding or this is taught this way. That salt, it was expensive, so it had this high value, and it was used to preserve meat. So if that's what we're saying, then Jesus is saying, you're the salt, if you follow me, you're the salt of the world, which means you have high value, you have high cost, and yet I want you to go out into the world and preserve it the way I want to. There's also another way, or another understanding, which I'm going to go with today, and in first century, and in this context, and the people Jesus would have been speaking to, they could have understood it this way. There was another use for salt. They would take dung from their farm, and they would take the salt and pack it on the dung, and when it was dried out, they would bring it into their homes, and they would put it into their fireplaces, not to cook with, just to be clear. They'd put it in their fireplaces, and when they would ignite it with a flame, the dung now, because of the salt alone, would burn brighter, it would burn hotter, and it would burn longer in there. And so now think about this. If that's what we're going with, Jesus is actually saying, you are the salt on the stuff. And that's a nice way to say it. And I think it makes sense because when they're done, when, when, when the dung burns off because of the salt, it, does, it loses its saltiness and it no longer burns brighter or longer. They would then take the shovel as Trisha did very nicely, 
they would take the shovel, they would remove the dung from the fireplace, they would throw it outside, and they would trample on it. And that's what the passage says. They would then put it out. So Jesus is calling us, if you're the salt of the earth, the salt of the world, he's saying, I want you to be in the messy places. I want you to be in the dirty places. The things that people are trying to stay away from, those smelly places, I don't only want you to be there, I want you to be on that. I want you to be right there on that. And I want you to be the salt. I want you to burn brighter. I want you to have more intense of a, of, of a brightness. And then he goes into verse 14, and it continues, and it makes sense in the context of this passage. Because then he says, you are the light of the world. And now it makes sense in why he's talking about salt. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So you're the light of the world. And so can you imagine how important light was in this time, in this context? I think, I was thinking about it in our context. We walk into a room, and if it's dark, we just do this. Right? That's all you do. You flip on the switch. It's this motion, and then everything lights up. You walk into this room, and everything's lit up for you. You don't have to do anything about it. Now, could you imagine if that's different? Imagine if you live in a house where you're, you're lighting an oil lamp. And so you're not going to take that as a family member and keep it in your room and, and put it in the corner and just keep it for yourself. Just say, you've got you to let everyone see it. So what is Jesus calling, to, calling us to in this context? In the darkest places, in the tough conversations, again, the places that people don't want to go, I want you to be that light in that dark place. So you're the salt and you're the light of the earth. If you follow Jesus, this, this is actually a command. This is what you are. This is what the church is. You are the ones, if you follow Jesus, to go to the nasty, smelly, dirty places that no one else would go, and you be on that. You are called to go to the darkest places and be the light in that place. And how does that look? Now, what does that actually look like? In John 5, there's a story of, of Jesus. And... Let me just read it to you. John 5, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews. Now there in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there, had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. And when the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, 
pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And then down to verse 14. Later Jesus found him, so the guy left. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. So there's this pool. And in the pool, there's this belief that when bubbles would arise to the surface, that an angel of God was taking a bath or stirring in the water. Now, we don't believe this. This was the folklore of the time. And so a lot of people with disabilities would come and lay or be left there. And people would actually bring them food through the years. Be left there. And so the idea was, when they saw the bubbles come up, whoever's the first one to do the cannonball, whoever's the first one to roll in, the first one to jump in, whoever that is, they will experience healing. And so, now imagine what this pool looks like. People left there for a long time. People bringing them food. People probably just laying there. People who probably can't take care of themselves. It's probably a messy place. It's probably a, lot of, it's probably a place that a lot of people don't go. And where do we find Jesus? He's on it, right? He's right there on it. He's in this place. And so the progression of what does salt and light look like in the world, it's the story of John 5. Jesus goes, and when he gets there, when he gets to this messy place, this smelly place, he has compassion on people. That's two, he has compassion. And when he has compassion on people, then we see in 14, the man knew who Jesus was. This is our role as salt and light. This, this is what we do. We go to those dark places as being the light. We go to the messy places, the smelly places being the salt. And when we get there, our role is to have compassion. And when we enter into that relationship of having compassion, not telling people what they need to do, not telling people how to fix their life, just having compassion on them, helping them to get well, and then the next step, hey, let me, know, let me tell you about what I love. Let me tell you about the one that met me in my messiness. Let me tell you about the one who met me in my darkness. Let me tell you about Jesus so they can know who Jesus is. And that's a story of John 5 played out in the life of Christ. So the main idea of John 5 that I want to go after, that I want to leave you with, is one word, compassion. What is the salt and light? What are you? What are you supposed to be doing as a church outside? Have compassion. Have compassion on those, especially those who don't know Jesus. They have no idea who he is. I think a lot of times we say, oh, but this person is so far away from, from God. Can you really be that far away from God? Can you really be in a place where like, oh, that person's, more, that person's farther away from God than that person is? How do you make that call? How do you make that judgment? We have no idea. I think it's either you're, you're not walking with God or you are. I don't know how, it's, how, are, how is this level of, oh, that person's too far. I don't know if I can reach him. You're right, you can't. I think God can through you. The idea here too just isn't 
an intellectual thought of compassion's nice. Let me sit and think about that for a little bit. Oh, that's nice. It's about living it. It's about doing it. It's about actually being it out in the water. The water? I'm thinking about surfing. See? <laughs> in, the, in the world. But we have to, I, I think if you guys are anything like me, I learn from actually doing. And I think that's where we get those concrete ideas, these concrete beliefs, is we have to do it. The analogy I always use for that is with my boys, I can, I can sit, I can put them in a classroom, I can draw pictures, I can give them a book about how to swim, but they're not going to know how to swim until I throw them in the water, right? They're not going to know, but they can take a class on it, and they can probably even teach the class on how to swim. If it stays inside a classroom, if it stays inside the building, but until you get in the real world and it has to be played out, it's not going to work. The intellect part isn't going to work. This is the classroom. That's the pool. You got me? That's the pool. You just got to jump into it. Jesus tells the story in Luke 10 that there's this Jew traveling on the road from Jerusalem, his hometown, to Jericho, which is about 15, a 15-mile 15 um, walk, which obviously took hours and hours. And he had to go up into the hills a little bit in order to go down into Jericho. And the terrain is, is big boulders, rocks all over the road. And as this Jew's traveling, he encounters some robbers. And these robbers beat him up, make him bloody. They take his clothing, probably clothing that he was actually carrying with him in his travels, took his money, and left him half dead. And so he's probably laying there over one of the boulders, half dead, so I'm going to go if he still had one eye open. And so he has one eye open, and as he's sitting there wondering what's going to happen, is anybody going to encounter me in this, this road that stretches for 15 miles? He sees a priest walk by. And I can imagine through his one eye that's open, through the blood that's probably coming down from his head, from his body going, I'm okay, here comes the priest. He knew this man was a religious leader in Jerusalem. This man, this priest, his role was actually being in charge of the temple. And so he saw him and the priest walked closer and closer and when the priest saw him, in this little window, the priest decided, I'm gonna walk the other way. And he did. He went around him and completely didn't even encounter him, didn't even have any kind of engagement with him. Imagine what this guy's thinking now. He's probably at the point where he's maybe starting to black out or, or just pass out, fall asleep, until he sees another guy, this Levite, who works right below the priest. So he wasn't as important as the priest. He was a little bit lower of important, on the important scale than the priest. And so with his one eye open, he sees the Levite walking towards him. And when the Levite sees him, he walks on the other side of the road. The man lays there even longer. And still, probably forcing to keep that one eye open, he now sees someone walking towards him. And as he, under, as he sees who it is, he realizes it's a Samaritan. And in his mind, the, the Jew is probably going, I'm going to die. Because on the level and the scale of importance, you have the priest, who's huge in this community, you have the Levite, and now you have this person who's actually hated 
who's not even friends with Jews, can't even connect with Jews or be in a relationship with a Jew. They're not even on this scale of importance. They're off in some, in some other level, some other place. But the Samaritan walks up, takes the man, says he actually takes out his oil and his wine, which are ways to take care of wounds. Picks him up, puts him on his sweet ride, a donkey back then, takes him to an inn, and through the night, cares for him. Cares for his wounds. Probably makes sure he's not going to die. Probably allows him to get to the point where he can live. And then he leaves, the Samaritan leaves, tells the, the dude who owns the inn, hey, whatever expenses this guy, you know, rings up, if it's room service or he, you know, breaks a lamp or whatever it is, I'm going to pay for it. I'll come back and I'll take care of it. Now what's interesting about this story, you have three guys who saw exactly the same person in the same state of life. But two guys decided they were too busy or maybe they were too important or they had to be somewhere. The last guy, the Samaritan, didn't hesitate. He just said yes. I don't know if you're anything like me on this, but I have this, I figure out in my life, I have this 10 to maybe 15 second window. And in that 10 to 15 second window, if I, if I, feel, if I feel like I'm called to talk to someone about Jesus, or if I need to help someone, if I pass that 10 second, 15 second window, I start talking myself out of it. I start telling myself why I'm too busy, or why I need to be somewhere else, or I'm okay with the, you know, somebody else will help them. Are you, guys, are you guys with me on this? And what is it in that 10 to 15 second window that has so much power over us? How do we get to a place where in that space of 10 to 15 seconds, we just say yes, and we do it. We make it happen. We become alive as the church. We become alive as our calling to be the salt in the messiness in the light and the darkness. So the two things I want to leave you with are these. Because I think it's so easy to give a message and to walk away and go, what in the heck did he talk about? Or it was a lot of good stuff, but I don't know what to go after. I want us to go after this as, as the salt and light. One, say yes. Don't talk yourself out of it in 10 to 15 seconds. Say yes. Just, just go. Do it. The second is when you get there, have compassion. Have compassion. The two things, because this message is called church detox, the two things I want to detox from, things I maybe want to get out of our system and operate in a new space of life, the first one's this. We are not to war or fight people. It's not our role, ever. As followers of Jesus, our role is never to war or to fight people. Our war and the war that Jesus started is a battle and a fight of compassion. That's it. Our role is to go to those messy places, those smelly places, those dark places, and to have compassion, not to fight.
Our war isn't against people. I want to even bring it to this level. In the book of 1 Timothy, Paul, who was the mentor of Timothy, wrote to him. And there's this phrase in there that I hear over and over in church. Maybe there's some detoxing right now in this phrase. But I hear this. Fight the good fight. And a lot of times I see it paired with like a, I've seen this over and over, but like a men's conference banner. I'm not ripping on that, but a men's conference banner that has like a boxer and it says fight the good fight. I'm like, what is he fighting? Like what, are we, what is our fight, right? How do we fight? What does that even look like? And so Paul is actually telling Timothy, in the context of Timothy being a young pastor, trying to run this church in Ephesus, he's saying your fight isn't against man. That's not the fight. It never was and it never will be. Your fight, and this is where it brings it up, a whole bunch of notches. I'm turning it up to 11 right now. And so this is it. Our battle is the war against the soul. And so this is what he means, that if we follow Jesus, that we actually are called now the salt and light of the earth to enter into a battle to care for people's souls. We actually get to enter into a battle to introduce people's souls to its creator. So it's just not a physical thing. Fight the good fight. Paul's talking about the spiritual life that we can't even see that happens around us. And that everyone's soul is warred against. Everyone's soul is in a battle. And if you don't like to hear that, you can take it up with this, because I'm not making that up. It's in there. And this is our calling as the church. This is a huge calling. You are now invited to introduce people's souls to its creator. That's amazing. I get to do that? I'm called to do that? So what, is, what should the church be doing? That. By being the salt and the light. Everywhere. Through compassion. But first, by starting saying yes. By saying yes and showing compassion. There's no fight against people. There's no fight against the flesh. We're having compassion on people and they will see Jesus. The other one's this. We don't have to see the final result. I think a lot of times we want to walk with people from the starting line of their faith and walk with them all the way through it. And sometimes in life, we get a glimpse of that. Sometimes we get to see that. Working with students so long in my life, I've been able to see students who I still get calls from that I had, I had sometimes 10, 11 years ago who call me or leave me a message on Facebook and they said, hey, you got to remember this one time you said this one thing and it changed me. I'm like, I don't even remember being there. I don't even remember even saying that thing. Like, that changed me. And maybe it didn't change them in the moment, but they journeyed with that thought. That they journeyed with that idea, or maybe journeyed with that reality, and it changed them to who, who they are now. But we, a lot of times, don't get to see that all the way through. Our role is to say yes, to jump in, and to start it, and then we can leave it. And to jump in somewhere else that's messy and dark, and to start it there, and to jump out. And, and just live this life of bouncing around. Now, the great commission that we call, the greatest commission ever, that Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. You heard it just set up here a little bit ago. 
This is what it actually says in the original language. Wherever you be, make disciples. Not wherever you go. Wherever you be. So wherever you exist as the church, wherever you exist as the salt and light, make disciples in that place. So that doesn't mean it's just signing up for a, a trip. doesn't mean it's just Saturday serve, which is all good stuff. It happens outside the calendar of what the church creates. It happens outside of what we create as staff. It's you living and being it. The salt and light. Someone said this in one of our, our meetings. Someone said, well, I think a lot of times we don't say yes. How are we qualified? What if we don't feel qualified enough? So how are we qualified to do this? And someone in the meeting right away said this, quote, P.S., you are human, you are qualified. I love that. It's brilliant. So what should the church be? The salt and the light. Good in the messy places and the dark places. We're going to take communion if you are new here. The, the way we do it is you come forward when you're ready. You take a piece of the bread. Think about the broken body of Christ. Dip it into the cup, the juice, and think about the bloodshed of Christ on the cross that saved us, that washed us clean, that gives us freedom, that allows us to follow him. But I'd like for all of us to do this. Those that follow Jesus, before you come, I want you to think about this. In this moment, it's easy to go out in the world and go, you know, I'm the salt, I'm the light, I'm going to make more salt, I'm going to bring more light. But I have to remember myself, I wasn't always the salt. I wasn't always the light. Jesus met me in my messiness. Jesus met me in my stinkiness. Jesus met me in my darkness. And not did he just do that, he still does that. Are you with me on that? He still does that. I think that's where he meets me most of the time, in my messiness, my smelliness, and my darkness. That's where he meets me. That's where he comes alive in my life. That's where he speaks truth into me. So as you go to the table, as you grab the bread, as you put it into the cup, think about Jesus meeting you in your messiness. Not only before you were the salt and light, not only before he called you his own, but still in this day, even though you follow him, he still meets you there. God, thank you for calling us the light of the world. Jesus, we know that's a title that you held. We see that with with your follower, John, who said, Jesus is the light of the world. And Jesus, that you flipped it and pointed at your church, at your body, at your people, and said, you are the light of the world. God, may these ideas not just exist as concepts in our mind to sit and ponder. May they, God, come alive. And this God, you know my heart in this. This is my, to be honest, my frustration in preaching is I don't want it to be words, God, for our community. 
I want to be how we are, what we're called to. God, I think we all realize we get to live this life here one time on earth. It's amazing. It's amazing when you get to live it, God, as the salt and the light. We really believe that the name of Jesus can go into the messy places and to change lives. When the light of the world can go into the dark places and be put in a place for all to see and understand and to come to. God, as we come to your cross, to your body, to your blood, may we understand the power of your death and saving us, as Bobby said, calling us your own. God, may we live as the salt and the light, as you have commissioned, as you have commanded. It's in your holy name, Jesus. And we celebrate you now with your body and your blood. This is to you. We hold you up high in your name. Amen.